the scene was dead anyway. A music scene lives, a music scene dies. The stories, however, are immortal. The scene was dead anyway is a look into the lives, communities and music scenes that help shape an entire generation. Hello and welcome to the Scene Was Dead Anyway podcast. I'm your host Rick Walland. This is episode number 23. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Chris Richards of Q and Not You. From the official Discord Records biography page, John Davis, Harris Clark, and Chris Richards formed Q and Not You in the summer of 1998, along with former member Matt Bolick began playing out in the November of that year. The band's first release, the hot and informed single, came out in April 2000 followed by the band's debut full length, No Kill No Beat Beep, released in October of 2000. After much touring in support of their album, the band parted ways with Borlick and continues as a free piece releasing the single On Play Patterns in April of 2002 and their second full length different damage in the fall of that same year. Q Not You toured extensively in the US, Europe, Canada and Japan with friends like Black Eyes, El Guapo, Antelope, Erasa Ted Leo Pharmacists and many more. The band released their final album Power in October 2004 and parted ways one year later. Chris Richards released a solo album under the name Riz Paul Rick in 2006. He currently lives in Maryland and is the pop music critic at the Washington Post. Before we start, if you're watching on YouTube, please could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow. If you're listening on Apple iTunes, please could you leave a review under the ratings and review section. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter by searching The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Uh, yeah, so welcome. Welcome on the show. Uh, you, you are, would you like to introduce yourself? Who, who are you and, and where do you live? And Sure. My name is Chris Richards. I'm a musician and writer uh, based in the Washington, D.C. area. I live in Maryland right now, in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside the city. Um, do a lot of things but you have invited me on because i used to play in a band called q and not you which started uh when i was 19 years old in the summer of 1998 and we existed until some uh late summer 2005 when i was about 26 and it's longer ago than i feel it's longer ago than it feels yeah <laughs> it feels yeah, like yeah. it was like yesterday but it was it was a minute ago i suppose it was quite a short lifespan really as a band it was about seven about seven years was it yeah and i think you know i've been listening to a lot of hardcore and punk music over the course of quarantine and in some ways it feels long putting out three albums that's like kind of triumphant for a lot of punk bands who yeah that, that's yeah that's are, true yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you're yeah. when you're young and volatile you know some people don't even make it to that first record so in a lot of ways you know i feel like we were like you know led zeppelin or something that way but that's yeah so, so were you? So were you? Were you born and raised in that area, or are you from a different part of 
of the States? Yeah, I, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my family moved around the States a little bit when I was very young. But by the time I started um, kindergarten, at age five, we settled in a town called Arnold, Maryland, which was like a suburb of Annapolis. Uh, and if um, you guys aren't familiar, Annapolis, it's the state capital of Maryland. It is um, a colonial city where a lot of the colonial architecture has been preserved. And um, it's also the home of the United States Naval Academy. So you have the, you know, the bureaucracy of state government, you have um, the oppressive vibes of American colonialism, and you have mm. the US military all in one spot. So it was a yeah. very psychically oppressive place. And the DC punk scene appealed to me as soon as I learned what was happening 45 minutes down the road as a teenager. So, so I guess uh, I want to ask you who, who were your early influences? Uh, like what kind of music you were listening to when you're growing up and yeah how far back do you want to go like yeah just just yeah uh, as far back as as you can remember remember. yeah i mean i have two small children right now uh a a nine month old and a three and a half year old so i'm like really cognizant of how much music they're being exposed to because we have it going on in our house constantly now Mm. um so it's flashing me back to like what are my first musical memories and of course i think we all kind of grew up with the music in our homes and what our parents were into and you know my dad played in like a bar band so okay. uh like a kind of like a rolling stones cover band you know when he before okay. he was yeah. a parent so yeah. we had tons of like rolling stones records around and um he really liked the talking heads when they came out so like there's that funny like i think it's it's either a meme or an onion article about like a cool dad introducing his child to the talking heads remain in light record but that actually totally was my reality like my dad bought oh. remain in light when it right. came out and we had it in our house and it's one of the first records i remember hearing I remember thinking the cover was so crazy looking, you know, like the mm. their faces kind of blotted out with that red, those red squares. Um, mm. So really like, it's, I know it sounds corny and hipster, but like, or what people would say, people might call it that, but literally one of the first records I love was the Talking Heads Remain in Light because my dad played it for me. But then like, as I got older, you know, um, you start getting interested in the music outside of your home and hearing things on the school bus and hearing things at the bus stop and, um, I had a little clock radio in my bedroom. So after my after I was supposed to have gone to bed, I would like surf the dial and listen to whatever was on the radio in the 80s and early 90s. And that's like prime New Jack Swing era, Janet Jackson, things like that I really loved. And then I think once I got to high school, then punk was presented to me and it really spoke to, subconsciously it spoke to a lot of things that I was concerned with and it gave me a sense of identity. And, mm, you know, mm, I think that's mm. when I really sort of pledged it as a, as a, as a, as a part of who I'm going to be. Um, and unfortunately I abandoned all the music that I loved, you know what I mean? Like I got rid of all my Bobby Brown tapes and stuff, which I really regret doing, but okay. <laughs> music is cool. Cause you can always come back to it. And I've been yeah, spending yeah, my yeah, life yeah. coming back to the things that I've abandoned. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm guessing, obviously when we talk about punk and you know, you, you eventually start, you worked with discord, um, Ian and, and I guess those kind of bands like Fugazi, Manifret, and they were big influences for you as well. Um, absolutely absolutely so the my kind of punk introduction story was um ninth grade in the states is the beginning of high school and on the first day of school there was like a new girl on my school bus her name was deanna and she had just moved down from massachusetts and she had like a cool jacket with patches all over it and like a nose ring mm. and i was still kind of like into the grunge music of the time this was 1993 like the fall of 93 so i was still okay. into like pearl jam nirvana but i also kind of knew that that stuff was sort of drying up for me and i needed to find what was next and she was so generous this this girl um she got me into everything she gave me my first fugazi tape which was steady died of nothing 
She got me into Sonic Youth, Bikini Kill, Black Flag, Minor Threat, like all over the course of like a week. And it was a life change, literally a life changing thing. Um, it wow. changed the course of my life yeah. completely. Wow. And then to learn that like, you know, cause I was still coming out of this rock and roll scene and I was like, well, do kids in Seattle, like, can they go see Nirvana play like for $5? You know what I mean? Like I was so mm. confused about it because it seemed like, well, these are the rock stars quote unquote from, from my area but everything that they're doing is so accessible and you can mm. get right into it. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And that was like really, really shocking to me and really, really empowering to me. So I was off to the races after that. And I, I still, I thank her all the time to this day. I send her like letters and, you know, messages on social media. I'd be like, thank you so much. Cause she literally, this person through being generous and wanting to share this thing she cared about, um, literally changed my life completely. So, but yeah, getting into Fugazi, it was awesome um, because obviously they're still probably my favorite band that ever existed and to be able to be a part of what they were doing it just felt so incredibly empowering i mean i know there's a lot of people have these sort of like rosy ideas about like what dc was like and sometimes a lot of those ideas are were, were true for me you know mm. you felt like a part of of what was happening you felt like a necessary participant in the dialogue between what was happening on the stage and in the crowd and the fact that you could go see them for $5 and that $5 in DC always went to a charity. They never played for money in Washington. All oh, their hometown oh. shows went to, to groups like Positive Force that helped yeah. with yeah. issues that I wasn't even aware of as a teenager because I'm just this naive kid from the suburbs who was learning about how the world works. You know, They really ingrained so much wonderful stuff into um, into me. And then also too, that like you could start your own band and you could play a show just like this one, you know, you could play mm. in the same room even, you know, mm. if you get it together and mm. it all the, you know, the barrier to entry was zero. And the fact that it was an all ages scene where young people could get into the nightlife for the shows that were at clubs had a huge part uh, to do with it, but it just made me feel like, you know, as a, as a listener, you are necessary. And also just like the ideas, like, like the, the boundary between performer and audience really started eroded away almost immediately in my mind, because you'd be in the crowd standing next to people in other bands that you loved, you know, and that was yeah. this huge shock yeah. teenager. You yeah. look over and you'd see, you know, Alec Mackay watching someone, you'd be like, Oh my God, you know, like you're just here in the crowd with me. What, you know, <laughs> this, this isn't, this isn't happening in New York yeah. city. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's not the same kind of thing. So wow. um, it was incredibly, incredibly empowering for, for a teenager. And I just wanted to be as close to it as possible. So when it came time to go to college, I went to college in DC and, and continued playing in bands and getting more and more involved in the scene and really kind of making it, making it my yeah. home. So would you say that's what, what you consider the, what DIY is, the kind of DIY ethics is what you just talked about, that kind of? I think so, yeah. Just the fact that like, you know, it's a, it's a story that gets told time and time again. And it's almost tiresome, you know, you have all these like, like older people in independent culture saying, we created our own, our own community. We created our own art. But mm. I mean, it's really true. That's what happened. And also too, it's not over. Like it still happens in different shapes and different forms. And music to me is community. It is this big exchange that we all share together, whether you're at a stadium concert with 20,000 people or you're at it like a little jazz show in a DIY venue with five people, you know, mm. you're having mm. this experience with your neighbors, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. seeing music in three dimensions is really important that way, especially as we have so much more of our musical lives being spent in online spaces where we're sort of anonymous ears sort of floating through the ether, I think yeah. it's really, really important to kind of refresh ourselves and, and remind ourselves that we we, sh we see music together. We see it shoulder to shoulder. We experience it together. What it means mm. is shaped by the people that you're seeing it with. 
You know what I mean? Mm. And, 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 you know, I love, I know I, I write about music for a living now and I love writing about the artists from Washington DC the most because it's literally letting people know what their neighbors are up to, you know? Mm. And mm. did you know that this person who lives in your community is creating this art? It's being born from a lot of the same circumstances that you're living in, no matter what, because you live in the same geography, temperature, you know, capitalist climate, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. this, these are the sounds of your neighborhood quite literally. And I think um, that's just a lesson that just keeps coming back to me over and over and over again. So rather than like, you know, DIY being this great thing, like we did it ourselves, you know, the, the industry wasn't paying attention. So we made our own thing. Yeah. I think that just happens, you know, naturally, you know, a, a, the, the gospel choir at your local church is a DIY effort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we, you know, so music community is foremost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not exclusive to kind of punk music, the DIY thing. It can yes. Be. Thank you. You're getting exactly yeah. to what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, what I'm yeah, saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're here today, I'd say mostly because you're in a band called Q and Not You, uh, who are abs like one of my favorite bands. I absolutely love Q and Not You. And, uh, Thank so you. let's, um, let's start with, uh, how did, how did you get together? I mean, initially you started as a four piece. Is, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, the band formed in the summer of 1998. I had already known the drummer, John Davis, because he was in a lot of bands that I really liked. Um, one group was or a, a band that I really liked in high school called Korm, and that's spelled C-O-R-M, not K-O-R-N, oh, the, oh. the new metal band. And they yeah. had a lot of confusion coming up because this, of course, was like the mid-90s. <laughs> but um, <laughs> check out Korm, C-O-R-M. They're on Spotify and all the other streaming services and stuff, Bandcamp, things like that. Um, and they were great, and they were a band that were just a few years older than, than, than me and my friends, but we got them to come out and play in Annapolis, and John also ran like a record distro, and he had a, a fanzine that he did. He was all in. And I was like, I want to do what you're doing. Like, I want to be as involved in this music community as you are. So I started, I, I was already playing in bands at the time I met him, but I continued to. I started doing a zine, you know what I mean? Um, I never did a record distro, but like I started hanging with John Heavy just because he was super, super involved in the community. Um, so he and I had a really short-lived band together called The Elusive, which lasted for like nine months with like some of the Corm guys. And that was basically like the summer I got out of high school through like my freshman year of college. And then that ended and I said, what are we gonna do next? So we got this guy, John and I got involved with this guy, uh, Matt Borlick, who was a high school friend of mine. Yeah. His little brother, Mike, was in my high school band. And Matt was kind of like our like roadie slash chaperone. He was the guy who was old enough to have a driver's license and a car. Right, so he drove yeah. us to all of our shows in high school and stuff. He would take yeah. us, he actually drove us to our first Fugazi show at the Washington Monument in 1995. Wow. We had to like race back to his car because he had to start a work shift, like bussing tables at a crab shack in Annapolis that night. So, so I go back with wow. Matt super, you know, even longer than John, I guess. And um, so the three of us started playing together and we're like, let's do this as a trio. And it, we had written a couple songs and it felt like it needed something a little more. And I also knew Harris Clark at that point. He had a band called the Glenmont Sound System. And that was a trio as well. And they were trying to like maybe grow things a little bit. And he asked me if I would consider joining that group. And for whatever whatever reasons it didn't quite work out and they ended up imploding before i could even consider the offer i think and i said to harris well i have this thing going with matt and john why don't you come over and he said sure why don't we get together and like just like play some guitar and like talk about music first and this is like a really enchanted memory for me i took the metro out to glenmont maryland which is like a distant exurb of dc um where harris lived with his mom uh in like a two bedroom apartment but man it was like a one and a half bedroom apartment because harris's room was so tiny it was like i feel like i get packages in the mail that were bigger than this guy's bedroom at the time wow. and it was just filled with records 
like just avalanche of music. And we spent the afternoon, we played a little bit of guitar, but we mostly spent time listening to records together. And he had like all these crazy screamo records and um, like bands like Behead the Prophet. And he had a record of like Lennon's speeches, like an old, like 78. And I, and I was like, you listen to this, like his music. He was just the most musically adventurous person I had ever met in my life at that point. Mm. And I totally fell in love with him that day. And we wrote some like cool riffs. And I said, okay, well, we should all get together, the four of us. Um, and at the time we were still practicing in Annapolis at like um, Matt's mother's house basement. That's like our first practice space for like the first six months of the band. Cause we didn't know if it was gonna be anything or whatever. Um, but instantly it really, really started clicking. We had all kind of gone through our high school band, awkward figuring it out phases. And we were all really, really hungry and really, really focused. And we all, you know, we weren't really all but I mean, I knew I knew all these people, but they all didn't know each other. Matt, John, and Harris did not know each other at all. We just knew mm. each other from the scene. Like, oh, there's that okay. guy. I've seen you at a Jawbox show or whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so kind of like strangers. And we just, the chemistry and energy level was really, really high from Jump Street. And we just wrote a ton of songs right away. And it really, really um, had a ton of momentum straight away. And I think part of that is just being young and hungry and really wanting to be a part of this musical community that had already given us so much you know mm. i'm not acting like we started our band as like some kind of like reciprocity <laughs> project or whatever like we must repay the community for investing its <laughs> resources in us. but we just felt like this is a scene we want to be a part of we want to carry on the ideas of these bands that we grew up loving and they, like we talked about earlier some of these groups like flame out instantly you know what i mean you know, so like Nation of Ulysses wasn't around anymore, but there were still some things that they cared about that like we cared about. It's like, can we try and bring that into what we're doing? We really thought of ourselves as a Washington DC band. And I think from Jump Street, and I think that's really helpful for a group starting out too, to really know who your audience is for, or who know who your audience is and know who the music is for. And it was mm. very easy for us to write, I think, because it wasn't like we were just trying to make music to like put into the void and say, well, someone like this, we could very much envision like, this will be the song we play at this house that does shows, you know, in hmm. Silver Spring. This will, hmm. this will, I, like, I can envision this popping off so hard at the Wilson Center. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we ever discussed that explicitly, but I think in our minds, like, you could, you could, you knew where it was going to go and like how yeah. it might resonate. I think yeah. that was incredibly helpful just to kind of maybe have that as like a, I don't know, like a, like a safety net beneath us or something mm. to just like write like crazy. So huge momentum and huge chemistry. And we all really, became you know really really close this way and it's a musical relationship that i have not had since then just like a real telepathic thing forms yeah. i don't know if it can yeah. form later in life if you haven't been cultivating it the whole time like mm. we were just really really ripe and ready for it at that moment in our lives because we're all like 19 20 years old and yeah. ready to go and, and so, so the so the music that you sort of wrote what was was it kind of like just you started jamming and then it was just kind of forming like naturally? oh yeah that's what I should say. Everything was pretty jam based. Everyone would bring in like riffs and things like that, but no one would say, here's a song called X and it goes like this. Never. No. Tons of jamming, tons of like the best stuff, of course, we realized really quickly was just would just come out of thin air. You know what I mean? Mm. From playing together. Mm. Um, and that is a magic and a wonder that I cannot communicate how cool that is to so just everyone just kind of in their own heads. And then suddenly the room is alive with this thing that wasn't there before yeah, and nobody amazing. nobody channeled it nobody said here's what it's gonna be no one let it it just sort of formed and the part and that, that's how we wrote songs we would just like wait for those moments to happen and then we grab on them you know 
you know, and as time yeah. went on, we would just like be rolling cassette tapes constantly and then like hold on to the jams and maybe listen to them later and say, oh, listen to this 15 second part. Like we really were doing something cool here. Let's go back and try and flesh that out. And that mm. was how our songwriting process worked. And I think mm. that's what made it cool and strong and, and, and interesting, definitely to us, you know, because it mm. almost became this like metaphysical event <laughs> you know what i mean like you're kind of having this like seance and waiting for the song to arrive wow yeah, we were yeah. all so energized and jacked up that they would always come you know what i mean it was not hard to write at the beginning of that band it was like we were up to our ears in, in music and a lot of songs actually like tons of stuff got abandoned back then which is crazy i can't believe all the stuff we left in the trash bin mm. you know like mm. not completed songs just like the riffs and things that were thought out i mean there's tons of stuff that got left on the floor yeah um, and so and so your first album was uh no kill no beep beep which was mm -hmm. released in two at the turn of the, the of the millennium i believe that's right um and that so that was with with matt on bass so you as the four Correct. piece so how, mm -hmm. how was how was that writing writing the album and um, what yeah, all the songwriting I've been talking about so far all kind of ended up on No Kill No BB pretty much. So all that mm. energy of like that out of the gate energy, that's all in that record. And it was all like really, really collaborative. And um, and yeah, I think you can hear it on. The, I think you can hear it hopefully on the record. And it's and it stayed that way even after Matt left, which we can talk about in a minute. Like we kind of kept that spirit and tactic technique going, um, but. The one thing, I mean, I guess there's that kind of corny thing where it's like, you only get to make your first album once, you know, kind of idea. Mm. It's really true. You know what I mean? Like when, yeah. you, when you're starting something, like that's it. That's the only time it's ever going to be starting. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. the momentum that we had from starting together is really in that record a lot. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so, as you said, uh, Matt actually ended up, did he, did he just, did he leave the yep. band after that? Or what, what No, we asked, there? we asked Matt to leave. We had, um, you know, and this is all like, so it was so fraught at the time and really emotional and really hard you know part of it was creative part of it was personal stuff he uh you know well first of all here's the thing when you're young and in a group everybody is volatile and fragile and just like learning how to be a human being yeah. and you're suddenly you know not like i'm not gonna pretend that this was some kind of like oh poor me it was hard but like we were on our dream label instantly you know what i mean like things yeah. that we had like spent our entire adolescence dreaming about were like very quickly coming true for us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We had recorded mm -hmm. with Ian Mackay and wow. he was kind of becoming a mentor and a friend to us, which just seemed like surreal at the time. I was like, yeah. man, this is a guy who I had like posters of on my wall, like three years ago. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and now he calls my house to like, you know, ask what's going on. You know, it was like really, really a, a kind of a lot. And I think the intensity of it, carried us away in a lot of ways and you know then all, of course the other part is like touring it's like okay now everyone get in this like vehicle and spend six weeks together traveling across america <laughs> you know what mm. i mean like in tight confines mm. so all the intensity of that kind of like brought personality clashes to the fore with matt i remember kind of being like my sort of thing was like i can take whatever i can withstand like whatever personality clashes we're having as long as the music is continuing to flow mm. after no kill no beep beep when we started writing songs again that's when it was kind of like the dagger in our relationship with him in that like he had just a different like maybe like a more i don't know conservative idea of what the band could or should sound like i don't even know if i'm remembering this properly but i remember it being like the songwriting became like our personality stuff bled into the creative process and then it was like okay well now this is not gonna work so we asked matt to leave the band um mm. which was very hard to do and then it was like, well, do we start a new band? Do we continue on as this group? What do we do? And we started playing to, before we decided that really, we kind of um, continued playing together and Harris, John and I, and really felt almost like a, like a sort of sense of renewal 
because of like, sort of like the bad energy that had been in the group for a little while sort of lifted and we started writing all these songs and you know that's i think we wrote soft pyramids like which is one of my favorite q and out you songs like very very early in that trio process and we thought okay this is cool let's keep going so that was the the plan i think if i'm remembering it correctly i could have been remembering this wrong and i don't mean to disparage matt at all who was a no, lovely person no, no. and um and and who i is is you know was a dear friend to me in like really important years and and it was an incredible bass player too i mean we were reminded of that I was reminded of it constantly as I tried to play the bass myself in the group <laughs> on certain songs. I was reminded of how good Matt yeah, was. Yeah. And then I was also reminded by like a lot of a lot of reviews that we got and a lot of conversations after the shows with people being like, So when are you gonna get a real bass player? you know? And I was like, I was playing I was playing the bass up there. It was a real bass. Oh <laughs> you know? wow, wow. But uh but yeah. you know. Some people will just tell, tell it how it is in punk, which is cool. So Matt, yeah. Matt's absence was absolutely felt too. And I'm sorry that it had to go down that way, but I hope everyone looks, I mean, I look back on every phase of the group in like the fondest terms, just because I remember so much good of those times too. So, um, yeah, but yeah, so props to Matt, shout out to Matt. Um, but yeah, so then, yeah, the next phase of it was like trying to write as a trio. We had a lot more space, like sonic space in the songs hmm. and, and Harris and John and I were just like adventurous people musically and we thought of fun cool engaging ways to sort of fill that up and we were into music obviously by then like we were clearly our appetite for music had gone beyond punk and hardcore i mean it probably that was the case at the start of course but like it was like really like how far can we take this and what can we do while still sort of retaining this idea of what we want to stand for you know how much can we bring into it and mm. you know the, the real thing about q and you is like i could say that it taught me about friendship and loyalty and commitment and, and musicianship. The thing that it really taught me about was listenership and how to listen, not only to like listen to your peers as you collaborate creatively, but just listen to music together in like a collective setting. Like, you know, when people ask us stuff like, will you ever do reunion shows? Which is probably almost hundred percent not going to happen. Um, <laughs> the one part about it that I fantasize about is just being in the van with those guys and like listening to records and like everyone taking turns playing music for each other. Wow. Those are some yeah. of my fondest memories of the group mm. and the thing. And one of the things that I miss the most and they, and Harrison John through their like crazy intrepid listening habits, just really expanded my whole sound world and really taught me that like listening is life and like, the more you listen to, the, the wider your life can feel, the more possibility you can feel in life. So that was something that like really kind of became, I don't know, resonant to me early in the trio days too. And I remember another list, like another, again, these like memories of like times we all got together. I remember when it's like, okay, are we going to try and do this? Like it's a three piece, what are we going to do? And I remember we all got together and played records for each other. Like here's some like stuff that maybe we could try, you know, and Harris brought like a This Heat record. And was like, this is a trio. Listen to like how the drums fill up all this space, you know? Yeah. And I and I and I don't know if John took that as a prompt or if he already had it in mind or not, but like his drumming changes and it becomes, I don't know, more open and um more full, you know, and 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 everyone kind of like found a way to like fill up the form, to fill up the room, you know? Yeah. yeah um, but yeah. it started with getting together and like listening to records together and talking about mm -hmm. what we hear, you know? And it was really, really instructive. So I'm super grateful to both those guys to this day for like those life lessons because yeah. it's become like the story of my life, you know what I mean? To, to, and part of this is like the COVID talking. I've had a lot of time to reflect on life and like what I'm oh, grateful yeah. for. Yeah, so yeah. these peeps, yeah. so I just, you sit back and think about your life and it's like, wow, like if, 
if Deanna hadn't given me that Fugazi tape in ninth grade, I wouldn't be here. You know, if Matt hadn't, mm. you know, driven me to all those shows in high school, I wouldn't be where I am. Like if I hadn't listened to all these records with John and Harris in the van, I wouldn't be where I'm at. And, you know, we talk mm. about like music that changes your life. Um, I think all music changes our life. Like if I go listen to an FX twin record right now after this interview, like that will change my afternoon and change my mind state. So mm. I think all music is technically life-changing, <laughs> but yeah, some music yeah, is yeah. in relationship changes the actual course of your life and changes the decisions you make and the paths you follow. And I've really become really aware and grateful to those little twists in the road and, and who was there kind of holding my hand or guiding me or letting me follow in their footsteps, what have you. Yeah, so, yeah. And so, you, so you re, you release three albums uh, in total. Um, mm -hmm. Which which one would you say you were most proud of, and and why? Uh, well, each. I hope it doesn't sound like a cop out or like I'm dodging your question, but I really appreciate all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or you yeah. know, I appreciate things about all of them because they're all just phases of our life. The I mean again, like No Kill No Beep Beep was this huge momentum and kind of becoming part, like officially becoming part of this like canon of punk music that we cared so much about. That was like a thrill that just won't ever be matched in life. And then with Different Damage, it felt like the most musically rewarding kind of record yeah. because we felt really free and um, exploratory, you know what I mean? And kind of renewed and kind of this sense that like, you might get more than one shot at something you care about. Mm. And then with Power, the last album we did, you know, the big incongruity there for me is like, when we were playing live for the Power, like before and after Power, it's like those shows to me, we were just like totally killing it. And I felt so great on stage with John and Harris. The music did not require thought. Like the muscle memory was like dialed in and everything just felt automatic. Yeah. And I've never yeah. felt it musically since then. This idea of just getting on a stage and just knowing that like the whole set was just going to come right through me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, and the incongruity is like, when I listen back to the record, it doesn't feel that way. And I, so it's like the record doesn't feel <laughs> as flowing as the music did live. So when I think of like the power era, I'm like, oh man, we were so on fire back then. But then people are kind of like, oh, that's the worst record. And I'm like, wait, what? You know, but yeah, you, yeah, the thing yeah, I didn't yeah. really think yeah. about when I was young is like, you're survived by your recordings. You know what I mean? Like I kind of thought like we're a live band. And this is something that Ian put into our heads too. I'm not blaming him for this or anything, but he had, the, I think Fugazi had this, um, motto that the album is the menu and the show is the meal <laughs> wow yeah which i yeah, love and, and, we, and yeah. we yeah and we took it to heart it was like the record it's like and i think part of it was a strategy he used to kind of take pressure off of the recording process and mm. not make us feel so rigid like we were chiseling stone tablets that will f exist on the mountaintop forevermore which is smart of him and he's incredibly wise as a producer i could talk to you all day about how great he is to work with in the studio um so the idea of the album is the menu and the concert, the meal, we took it to heart. And also too, we were just part of that whole like black flag tradition of like, get in the van, go and prove yourself on the road, go to Little Rock, Arkansas and try and like change the way people think about the lives they're living. You know what I mean? It's, mm. it's, it's crazy mm. and egomaniacal and ostentatious as that sounds. That's where we were at. You know what I mean? And we were really into touring hard and making sure that the live show was killer. If you were to ask me back then, what's more important, making a great album or being great live, I would say there's no contest. You know, the thing I realized in hindsight is we're not around to play shows anymore. And these records you leave behind are the things that uh, come to define you. And maybe yeah, that's what makes yeah. music special too. You'll never know. You'll never get to know really what it was like unless you were there. And that's kind of like part of the dream of listening to music and imagining things. So I don't mm, know. Yeah, yeah. So how many how many tours did uh, did you do? Um, oh, uh, it's hard to count. I know we did. I think, um, yikes! 
I have a complete show list that I um, made with John. I'll try and tactfully let, look let, it up. Let right me, now, okay, let me, make it, <laughs> let me make it more uh, specific and just say, sure. did you enjoy playing the UK? <laughs> oh, tremendously, <laughs> tremendously, of course. Um, touring overseas was, again, like another thing that just seemed like, is this really happening? Mm. To be able to go anywhere outside of your town, you know what I mean, and um, and have people know the songs you were going to play, mm. mind-blowing, mind-blowing to me. And then mm. to like get in an airplane and fly across the ocean and some mm. kids who show up in, in, in Leeds are going to be able to sing along and they know where the breakdown is and like when to clap their hand, like the, the clap along parts are and stuff. It, it was never lost on me how insane that was and how, yeah. how grateful I was for it, you know, uh, at yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, the UK was awesome. It was great. I have incredibly fond memories of the shows there and the hospitality, of the people there and the bands that we played with. And we played one show in London that I think is on YouTube. Is it Camden Underground? Camden Underworld is the name of the venue maybe? I don't know if it still exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, I remember the show being so great and feeling so good about it. And the YouTube footage is like, oh, this is pretty good. We're pretty jamming. But um, my brother, my little brother was studying abroad there at the time. And I hadn't seen him before we went on. And I was like, oh, he's in the crowd. And I think I gave this like little heartfelt speech about, I love my brother, blah, blah, blah. And I was just so <laughs> proud. I was like, this is amazing. My brother's going to come to this nightclub. It's like sold out. We're totally like nailing it. He's going to be like really proud of me. And I'm going to be able to tell him how much I love him from the stage. It's so cool. Well, uh, he never made it to the show. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> After all, um, I, think it was, I think it was like an early show. It wasn't like oh. a late show. So he showed up at like, you know, at 11 p.m. Oh. with his buddies from the school program. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so that's, that's a little funny memory of, of my time of my time in, in the UK. Do you, yeah. do you remember this show? Can you see it? Oh, sure. Star and Garter, of course. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yep. so this this show is is I was I came to the show. I was 16 years old. Wow. Is that right? Cool. Uh, and I stood at the front and it was probably the most life changing experience of my entire life. Like you guys just absolutely blew me away, and oh man, thank you. Was, That's awesome yeah. to hear. And uh, I remember you was playing uh, so many animal calls, and I just yeah. felt like the roof was lifting off because yeah, it's kind of that oh, fall, kind of that fall to the floor kind of uh, a yeah, sure. thing. And it like the whole it was it was so loud, and the whole roof felt like it was going to lift off, and it was just like oh man, oh yeah, man, it was incredible. So thank you. I'm so <laughs> glad, man. I'm so glad to hear that. It not to sound like false modest or, or or cheesy or whatever but like it blows me away that people remember it and that it meant something to them and they've held on so to much. it like yeah yeah i mean because yeah. i feel that way about music deeply i'm down here in my basement right now i'm looking at stacks of records and zines and all this stuff and music blows my mind every single day so mm. to know that something i was a part of um gave even a like a micron of that feeling to someone else is like so deeply rewarding so thank you man that's awesome no worries and that flyer is in pristine shape you've kept it yeah, in very good yeah shape. yeah uh, well it's a it's a print off it's not the actual uh original oh. flyer. so yeah uh, but i did actually uh get your autograph after as well but i doubt you'll remember uh i came up to you and asked for your autograph and you you wrote on the on the uh on the ticket stub like you just signed it and then oh cool I said, okay, uh, right on yeah so yeah, it's a great, yeah, incredible memory I, for me. So did I say see you in seventeen years on the internet? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I think you were quite busy, so uh, I left you to it. Um, That's really so, cool, man. So what what was it like working with Discord Records? Then I mean, obviously you've touched on it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, amazing. I mean, um, 
working with Discord was incredible. Obviously, it was the formative music of all of our adolescences, and we loved Minor Threat and Fugazi and Slant Six and Hoover and uh, Nation of Ulysses and Jawbox and Started to Think and everyone. I mean, Void, all the older groups too. Um, it was just this crazy lineage that I, again, I couldn't believe it was from where we were. It was like, I can't believe all this music came from a place that I grew near where I grew up. You know what I mean? I felt so lucky. So to be, become a part of it was just like beyond crazy. Um, it started very organically. You know, we invited Ian to come to our CS play because John had known him. John's band Corm had done like a split discord release with, um, his record label shoot John's record label shoot. And so like the one Corm single is like a discord 0.5 release and a shoot records 0.5 release. Um, so he knew Ian and, and, and I think, you know, maybe he was at one of our shows earlier too. I can't remember. We had asked him like, Hey, come see us play. Da, 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 da. We want to talk to you about our band. And um, I was blown away that he showed up because I had not really met him before, but he was interested right away. And then later on, he has talked about like this thing that's like, when he goes to see a group, it's not just like, Oh, is the band cool? Like he wants to know that like there's an energy around it. And we mm. had already kind of made a really heavy connection with not a huge amount of people, but like the young kids our age, in DC we're, we're into it from jump street and like a really intense, cool way. So I think he just saw like that thing that happens in DC where like the music of the community connects with the people. And that was what he was interested in more than anything, I think. Um, so we slowly began this thing where we're like, Hey, we love the record. We love the recordings you did at in rear with nation of Ulysses and the slant six record. Like, how about, can we, will you, can we go to the studio and do a seven inch and you could produce it, you know? And he's like, yeah, sure. And it was like, okay, now do you want to put it out? And he's like, well, how about we do like a half release? And we ended up, so our first single is called hot and informed. And it was a half release between DeSoto records, which was Kim Coletta from Jawbox, who again is like a huge support and influence on us. Um, and, and discord, which again, so like already that's like amazing to be involved with these two labels run by artists who, I literally grew up listening to. Um, and then it was time to make the album and it's like, Hey, can we book a week at inner ear? Let's try it. And then we were in the recording studio with him making this album. And it was not like, we'll make it for discord. It was like, let's he again, Ian being casual. He's like, let's just go make a tape. Like, let's just go make yeah, a tape. Yeah, That's what he kept yeah. saying. Like, he's like, we're like, we're not making like, you know, your debut album here. We're making a tape. And it was all to like relieve stress, anxiety, maybe misplaced hope <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> but it, but you know what I mean? It was, and it worked and it was really great. And being in the studio with him was amazing because he just had all these great tactics like that. It wasn't about like Ian McKay knows how to place the microphones in the right place. Mm, you know what I mean? It's mm. about getting great performances out of people because he's made them feel comfortable and at home. So he would start mm. the day at the studio by showing us either a video or playing some music for us. And these each, so each morning of like the no kill, no BB sessions were like almost life-changing because like one morning I'd be like, Hey, check out this bad brains video. I have of them playing at CBGB in 1983. And this is before YouTube or anything. And I had never seen that before. And HR is doing the backflips and stuff. And I had bad brains records. And I know what they sound like. And I'd seen photos of them, but I'd never seen video footage of them before for whatever reason. So after you see that, it's like, Oh yeah, let's, let's go make some songs right now. Let's go yeah, do this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just totally energizing and totally yeah. inspiring. And also too, like a huge vote of confidence from Ian too. Cause it's not like he knew that we had enough confidence in ourselves and what we were doing that we weren't going to be like, Oh shit. Like that bad brains video is amazing. What's the use of even trying, you know, like mm, that was not mm. part of it. So like another morning he brought in like the music of Fela Kuti, which had not yet been reissued yeah. and presented all over the world yet. You know, um, the records of course were out, but he hadn't gotten like that sort of like, reintroduction into like the popular consciousness yet hearing mm. 
Fela for the first time is mind blowing, you know? Another day he brought in um, music by DJ Jubilee, who's like a New Orleans bounce DJ where like all that kind of like the cash money sound comes from. He had seen them at a folk music festival. He had seen DJ Jubilee at a folk music festival with Rick Rubin in Los Angeles or in New Orleans. And he was like, check this out, you know, <laughs> mind blowing. You know what I mean? Wow. And, that, and that's yeah. how, so that's how the studio session started every day. Just like huge burst of energy. And then you go in there and do it. And then in terms of like getting comfortable, like in the studio, when things got weird, he was great at it. Like I had never done vocals really in a studio by myself. It was my first time being like the lead singer in a, in a band, like in a real pro studio, I guess. And um, some of the takes were going kind of funny. And he's like, you know, he's in the other room. You know, he's like, Hey, put your guitar on. And I was like, what? He's like, put your guitar on while you do, while you, while you sing. And I was like, well, we already tracked the guitars. He's like, yeah. He's like, don't play the parts, just have it on you. And I was like, why? And he's like, because you've always sang these songs wearing your guitar. You're going to feel comfortable. You're going to feel, mm. you're going to get to your, you're going to like go to the place you need to go to make yeah, the vocal take pop yeah. off. Totally exactly right. So now every time I cut vocals, ever since I've been in band since then, I always try to hold the guitar in the, in the vocal booth because that's how you that's how you do it you know what I mean? even if you're not tracking a guitar live it's like yeah, yeah. just having the weight of it on your shoulders it puts you in the place that you are when you perform it live you know just little stuff like that genius genius stuff yeah. at making people yeah. comfy and ian you know he has this reputation as this like humorless scoldy guy and you know he's this like you know dude who's a historian hectoring people in the crowd not to dance it could not be less true he is the sweetest and funniest you know, an incredibly caring person and a hilarious mm. person too. Like mm. nonstop pranks mm. and like jokes and bullshit in the studio. Amazing, super, super funny. He gave everyone nicknames by the end of the tour or by the end of the recording session. He was calling John Randy unflappable <laughs> <laughs> because John's very, John is very stoic and kind of like can't be bothered. He's like, you're oh. Randy unflappable, you know? So John <laughs> was always like really good at getting the first take too. And so Makai would be like, that's Randy unflappable, you know? Um, He's just a lovely, lovely, lovely person. And I, any, anytime I see anyone talking shit <laughs> on the internet about him, I just go into a rage because they could not know how funny and sweet and caring he is as a human being who has done so much good for this world. So anyway. I, I got a chance to talk to him about 10 years ago and he, he was just amazing. So um, I was, you know, I'm, I'm like a nobody and, and he just spoke to me for like an hour and I was like, that's just incredible, man generosity i mean he can he yeah. made this interview happen he emailed he emailed me and said hey will you do this or this, this guy right, is yeah. interested in this. so yeah so just yeah. a fountain of generosity and tons of human spirit just sort of flowing out of him at all times and i, I love him deeply great man um we i mean i haven't got that much time but i, I have <laughs> uh for the last bit i have some questions uh it's not sure. this isn't this isn't live by the way this is these okay. are questions before that i've i've got um this is from a guy called Andrew Bergman on Facebook. Discord house is on fire with all the master tapes inside. You only get to rescue one. Which album do you save? Oh my god! All the Discord masters. Yeah. Um. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Um. Yeah, it's good that you're editing this down because there'll be 20 minutes of umming and eyeing. <laughs> I think. I mean, impossible to answer. Impossible to answer a question. I mean, Minor Threat for me, Fugazi was the beginning for me, but mm. Minor Threat really became like, I'm really glad that I, it, there wasn't a long lag time. Let me mm. rewind it this way. A lot of people discover Fugazi in my age, got into Fugazi, were into it for a long time before they even knew what Minor Threat was, which is hard to think about, but very yeah. true. Same, I was lucky. That, oh, yeah. that's you. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. was very lucky that it happened very quickly and I found out who Minor Threat was almost instantly after Fugazi. And 
being able to hear the progression from one to the other helped me appreciate both of them more. I'm in a real remedial hardcore phase right now during COVID and I've been listening to the filler seven inch like crazy. I think it's just like, I don't believe in perfect music, but I believe in music that become that gets very close. And that is right up there with like, you know, Zhao Zhobroto records or something, you know, of just like immaculate human expression. So it's a boring, boring answer, but I'm saving that filler, that filler seven inch. <laughs> Great, thanks. Um, Butter Magnate on Twitter, since becoming a music journalist as your actual paid job, what is the biggest reality you have had to face that wasn't apparent to you when you were a guy in a band? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, as much as, you know, being in Q&U taught me about music as community, it also maybe in a way sort of entrenched me in my community and covering popular music for the Washington Post has taught me to know that there are many communities, you know, all around us, some of them very, very close to us. Mm. And they all have an infinite wealth of stories and experiences and avenues for human expression and human communication and human sharing. And we'll never run out of it, right? We'll never run out of music. You know, mm. we don't have enough life on this earth to, to, to hear it all and to experience it all. Yeah. We don't have enough life to experience the stuff that's happening in our own zip codes, you know, within a 10 mile radius of our homes, literally. Mm. Um, and that's something that really, you know, even I felt like my scene and my community was the center of the universe and really, really important. And I think that writing about music helped me realize that we're just like one little molecule in this gigantic infrastructure of music making that, that, that spans the entire planet and space and time, mm. you know? Mm. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, this the and I've got a couple from my brother, uh, who's a huge. <laughs> he's a cool. He, he got me into into curing at you. So um, awesome. Props. Um, did the instrument swapping form part of the live spectacle to them, or did they just see it as a necessary? It was a necessary thing, and I never really knew if people thought it was cool or not. Sometimes, like um, instrument swapping and in punk was seen as like really annoying like you weren't committed to the instrument you were playing. And also it would like slow the show down because like the drummer has to come out and put the bass on. And then like the person who's not the drummer is gonna play the drums and it's not gonna sound as cool. <laughs> so I remember thinking it was like kind of gauche. And the thing that I was really proud about is our ability to do it without stopping the songs. We had this idea, you know, we we're getting more and more interested in dance music. From, we were interested in dance music from the start, but the more and more we were listening to DJ mixes, we were like, what if we did our set like this? And we tried to blend songs from one to the other. And is it possible to switch from the guitar to the bass without the song stopping? You know, can John mm. keep the beat going? And we designed mm. it. Like the set lists would have like line breaks in them. Like oh. this, you can't stop unless there's a line break. So like the line break would be like tune guitars and talk and drink water. But if there were no breaks between those songs, you, the, the rule was no stopping. We have to find okay. a way to get from okay. one song to the next. That is not quite the level. That's us aspiring to do the Fugazi thing, which is no set list. And they just read each other's minds about what's coming next, which to me is like a whole higher like john coltrane level of music making that we yeah, were not capable yeah, of yeah. but we were capable of saying let's play these five songs in a row without stopping and we'll find ways to get from one to the other um mm, so mm. the instrument swapping if it was a spectacle that people thought was cool then that is a total accident because we were trying to kind of like cover up the awkwardness of it and just get from one song to the next mm. um but it was but in terms of like the, just the swapping in general like not even live yes it was out of necessity for sure because it wasn't like when we did, went to a three-piece it wasn't like okay well now i'll play bass harris you'll play guitar and john will play drums it was like 
Harris had a baritone guitar that he wanted to play. I had got a keyboard for Christmas that year from my girlfriend at the time. I wanted to play that. Like mm. we just started, it was basically like no rules, you know? Right, um, right, and right. We'll, we'll figure out how to do this live later. Right, right, <laughs> and we did. Right, yeah. 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 Great. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, and the last one, it's, it's more of a comment. Um, mm -hmm. It's from a, someone called Wake Up Super on Twitter. I can't think of any questions and I hate myself for it because I love Q and not you. Just tell him I said hi or something, lol. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you. No problem. I'm, I'm available on the internet for answers anytime. I'm easy to reach. So if a question ever forms in anyone's mind, great. very easy to find my email address. And I'm, I love answering anybody's questions at all. So yeah, holler. Uh, that's everything, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on, on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Rick, man. Thank you for your kind words, man. I really appreciate the time and the questions and just the fact that the music stayed with you is a, is a huge honor. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. It was an absolute dream to have Chris on the show. I loved his energy and the way he talked about his time in Q and Not You. I can see clearly the driving engine behind the music and the message they wanted to transmit. I'm so grateful to have relived some of those memories with him. Uh, it's also apparent the, the role Ian McKay played in helping them develop as a band, as people and as musicians. Ian's incredible legacy continues to be written. If you're watching on YouTube, please could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow. If you're listening on Apple iTunes, please could you leave a review under the ratings and review section. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter by searching The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. I'm your host, Rick Walland, and you were listening to The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Mm -hmm.